Welcome back to UVA Data Points. I'm your host, Monica Manning. If you haven't already, I'd recommend listening to the trailer episode of Data Points for a detailed description of the 4 plus 1 model of data science. In this first episode, we'll explore the area of value from the model. To recap, here's how Raf Alvarado defines this area. By value, I mean, why are you acquiring data in the first place? Right? What's the business proposition? What's the scientific motivation? Uh, what is it in the world that you're interested in studying or affecting uh, that you're acquiring data for and doing analysis for? So we call that the area of value because that's where the, uh, the purpose of working with data comes from. And also it's where data has an influence on the world where it can either do good or harm. And so that's where ethics comes in, right? So value is focused on the purpose, motivation, and impact of working with data. One of the leading experts in this area is Kathy O'Neill. My name's Kathy O'Neill. I'm a mathematician and data scientist. I also wrote a book called Weapons of Math Destruction. And my newest book is called The Shame Machine, Who Profits in the New Age of Humiliation? And I also run an, a consulting company that audits algorithms. Kathy O'Neill has a gift for explaining complex ideas and informing the public on the ways in which data impacts their lives. So whether you're a data scientist or not, you'll find value in Kathy's research and insights. In this episode, Kathy is in conversation with Professor Brian Wright. My name is uh, Brian Wright. I'm an assistant professor in the School of Data Science. My background is in education and economics, and I'm also the director of undergraduate programs. So I've been mostly building an undergraduate data science program here at UVA. Kathy and Brian's conversation covers the topics of data science education, algorithmic bias, effects of social media, how and why to audit algorithms, and much more. To kick off this conversation, we started by asking Kathy how she defines the field of data science. Kathy and Brian take the conversation from there. How do I define data science? Well, data science is a craft rather than a science, but it should be a data-driven craft. So when I say craft, what I mean is we have sort of phases of uh, work. So we, at the beginning with a new data science project, you would sort of try to get to know your data by um, looking at the shape of it and sort of understanding it. It's called exploratory data analysis sometimes. I will compare it to another craft, which I know well, which is knitting. Sort of like, what kind of yarn do I have? You know, do I have thick yarn that needs big needles or do I have thin yarn that needs small needles? Um, is it silk or is it cotton? You know, you need to know your your material. Um, and then you want to, if you're a data scientist, you want to figure out what your definition of success is. If you're building an algorithm, what kind of predictions are you trying to trying to make and what is your definition of success? And when we optimize to success, are we going to build in mistakes, and if not mistakes, sort of like un unforeseen consequences, you know, uh, unexpected repercussions or feedback loops that uh, are negative. So you sort of have to always measure and be aware of what could happen, what could go wrong, for whom will this fail, which is my favorite question, whenever you're building and designing a data project. In my opinion, in order to say you've done a data science project, you have to build a sort of scaffolding which is a monitoring system that makes sure that in the in an ongoing sense, things aren't falling off the rails. Yeah, I mean, I think having these conversations are really timely, right? So we're building this undergraduate, we're building many programs at the school, but one of which is kind of this undergraduate path, which is the new kind of frontier, I think, in data science education. And even in my classrooms, we talk to the students a lot that we can give them uh, kind of this pipeline mentality, but the hard work associated with data science is usually on the front and the back end. Right? The front end is totally understanding the problem that you're trying to address. And I think to these points and the audiences, it could affect thoroughly. That's a real thought, kind of qualitative process. Mm -hmm. And then once things are built, 
you know, we construct them in this kind of fabricated world, right? But then they live in the real world. And then I say, you know, much, much of the, the real talent behind being a data scientist is understanding how your algorithm is actually behaving once it's out in the world. And that's the hard part, I think, about education is actually creating an environment where they can experience that authentically because it's quite difficult, right, to measure data drift and, like, to have... So we're trying to build it's also ways. It also, like, yeah. makes people feel defensive and vulnerable, I will add, yeah. you know, at, at, a, at a sort of emotional level. Mm. What you're really doing, because I, I sort of developed a data journalism program at Columbia, so it's similar, but, you know, we're, we're starting with people that aren't really considered them, considering themselves techies, right? Yeah. The first half where you're teaching them skills like Python and, you know, MongoDB and, you know, sure. techniques and skills, it's so exciting because they're like, oh, now I know how to do this. Now I know how to do this. And yeah. they're developing skills that they can enumerate and qu quantify. Sure. I know Kung Fu. And then, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the second half, it's like, but, but sometimes you shouldn't do this. And sometimes you have to realize that you've made assumptions that if you made them differently, you would come up with really different answers. And sometimes even though your data says this is true, it's wrong. And and you, and you the, the idea of adding all those qualifiers is is hard for people to take because they're like, wait, I thought I, I, thought I was good at this. And now you're telling me I'm bad at this. And we're like, no, we're not telling you we're bad at this. We're telling you this is hard. Yeah. And then I, it's 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 hard because there are so many things about it that are uh, as much an art as there are a science, right? Yes. That you have to be, and we talk about at least I think this is kind of the nature of what is building data data intuition. So you have an intuition about what is going on, or like that there are there are things that you can't control, and like what does that mean for how you're going to use this algorithm, or should you use it? Yeah, and, I, and hard, that's why I called it a craft. Yeah, it's yeah. like I'm not an artist, but I am a crafter. Yeah, that's um, But I sort of think of it as like if I if I were building something with wood that was supposed to be a chair eventually, I would want to test it all the time right. to make sure it's stable and to make sure it doesn't tip. That that would mean like getting a bunch of people who are not me and me to like sit in it in weird ways and you know try to tip it over. Likewise, like when you're building a data science project, you want to make sure it's robust. But you also want to understand what you're doing. So like that's the kind of sensitivity analysis or whatever, however you do it, sure. to make sure that it's it's not tipping. Yeah. Oh, I love that analogy. That's great. So let's talk about what let's talk about what you're doing right now. So tell us a little sure. bit about just kind of yeah, where you're at. Well, I'm doing what I call algorithmic auditing. Now, um, I, I started a company called Orca that does that. Um, and to be fair, there's really two different types of algorithmic auditing. There's cooperative algorithmic auditing and adversarial algorithmic auditing. So like cooperative by that, I mean, I just, people hire me to look into their algorithms at, at companies, like at private companies. And, and I have to sign NDA, so I can't even tell you where they are. Some okay. of them are on my website. Um, but usually to be honest, like the reason they do that is because they got in trouble. Because they're embarrassed and and they're like, oh, people already think we're racist. Usually it's racist, accusations of racism. So we might as well like clear our name if we can. And they hire us to, to help them. Or sometimes it's like we don't want to be accused of that and we think that this is high risk. So we're going to get audited. Um, and then there are... Um, lots of companies that should get their algorithms audited, but they don't want to, and they don't see why they should. You know, they don't have, they, there's no leverage to make them do it. So 
there's a these are the ghost clients, if you will. Um, where like like a data scientist will call me up who works at one of these places, and they'll be like, "I read your book, Weapons of Math Destruction. I got really worried about what I do here." And I want to talk and I'm like, okay, let's talk. And it's like a therapy session because they're like feeling like I can't sleep at night. And I'm like, yeah, there's reason for that because what you're doing is high impact and like, but it's probably problematic. And they often say like, well, I'm not allowed to collect race information. So I don't even know whether it's really a problem. It just feels like there's a problem. And I'm like, yeah, there probably is a problem, to be honest. And then the second call, because the first call is always awesome. Like we're feeling really good about this and we have a way of doing of inferring race. We could talk about that. That's a big part of my job. Okay. The second call though, they're, the lawyer is on the line and right. the lawyer is like, I don't, we don't want to ask these questions because yeah. we don't want to know the answer and be using our product and then get go to court and it's in discovery and we're the next tobacco company. Right, right. So how do you deal with that? Where do you go from I don't there? deal with that. You I, just don't. I, yeah. Well, what I do yeah. is, okay, so let me tell you about the other half of my work, which okay. is adversarial audits. Yeah, I see. Um, I work with the attorney generals. I work now with the Colorado insurance commissioner. I work with, you know, federal agencies that are interested in these things. I'm not allowed to talk about (laughs) even yet. Um, But they're like, how do we enforce anti-discrimination laws when there are algorithms? And I'm like, yeah, great question. I can help you with that. So basically, and that's not well paid, just FYI. It takes a lot of time and there's a lot of people to convince. But it is eventually going to pay off in the form of leverage for that first type of ghost client. Yeah. Because the, the, the answer to the question, why should we ask these questions, is because otherwise the regulator will get you in trouble for not doing so. And then have you seen progress in kind of regulatory yeah. activity associated with this? Right, I think you mentioned something in New York, right? Well, New York City, uh, City Council just passed a law a couple a few months ago that requires all employers in New York City to audit hiring algorithms. The rules haven't come out, so we don't exactly know what that means, but it's supposed to start in 2023. So yes, that is exciting for me. Um, it's it, it, They require a, a third-party auditor for the algorithm, and I'm one of the only like I have one of the only companies that's great for an auditor. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, but um, also good for. But it could be bad too. To be honest, like if the rules are bad, it, there could pop up a bunch of competitors that are willing to do crappy things and call it an audit. Oh, I see. So yeah. one of the other things I do in the meantime is I try to set standards for what is an audit. It can't be nothing. Right. So it just can't be superficial, right? Can't there be has to be some type of activity. But still, even. Even if we're just getting started, this seems like progress, right? And then maybe if your continued activity, they could, oh, you know, kind of next yeah. generation this thing. And 100% make it in the following yeah. sense. Like when I started uh, researching my book, Weapons of Mass Destruction, which came out in 2016, but I started researching it in 2012, uh, nobody I knew cared. Like everybody I'd talked to thought that algorithms must be perfect. And I was like, no. As a data scientist, I can assure you that. I make lucky people luckier and unlucky people unluckier. And the way I decide whether someone's lucky or unlucky is based on their wealth, their race, and their gender. And that's how we do it. And like, that's a simplification, but not much of one. And so obviously it's racist, sexist, and and classist. Classist doesn't happen to be a protected class, by the way, ironically. So it's not illegal to be classist. It's not illegal to be discriminated against poor people. But some of those things are illegal. I knew that eventually down the line, this is going to be a thing and people would have to take it seriously. And people are starting to take it seriously. Well, I would certainly say that's true. I mean, thank, I mean, thank goodness you had that foresight, right? I mean, to uh, you know, no short extent, I think your book kind of created this whole 
modern ideal about exploring this particular concern about the expansion of data science generally. I don't think I was the. I I don't think I invented any of this, but I do think that my book helped make it really easy to understand, and that is what I was intending. So I'm really happy about that. Yeah, I think we all are. So let's pivot just a little bit. Let's talk about. I wondered your um, thoughts on data science education, since we're kind of here at UVA. So what should we? I mean, we talked about it a little bit, but tell me your thoughts. What should we make sure that the future data scientists should be learning? You know, it's really a struggle. If I were you. To, um, to build a curriculum that has any like real connection to being a real life data scientist, like an industry uh, employee data scientist, like you just don't have the data, may I say. No, that's totally fair. <laughs> so it's hard. Like there's the compass yeah. algorithm, a compass model data set. It's like the most overused data set ever. I'm I'm glad it's being used. That's to to be clear. I'm talking about a recidivism risk algorithm that was uh, that was this focus of a ProPublica report a few years ago um, that found that Black men had a, like twice as high a false positive um, risk score as white men, which they argued meant that the algorithm itself was racist. And then the North Point, which built the algorithm, came back with a white paper saying we define racism differently. And according to us, it's not racist. I think that's a really, really interesting use, uh, case study for you guys to do because at the very least, it, it brings up the question of like, what's the definition of racist? We don't have one. That's one of the things I talk about constantly is like, what metric do you use? What is too racist? What is acceptable racism um, given that you've chosen a metric? But we haven't chosen a metric. Like, start with that. Anyway, um, that's a great use case. There aren't that many. And yet right. you want to teach these kids how to think about real life consequences yeah. of algorithms. So you're going to have to rely pretty heavily on thought experiments. But yeah. good thing is thought experiments work really well. Well, it's funny because, I mean, that's actually how we originally met, right? I reached out because I was wanting to get some use cases to yeah. kind of put into our curriculum as good examples of how we can do things kind of from an ethical lens yeah. when we're starting to build. You so wrote that to me point. and I was like, no, I just want to visit. Can I visit? <laughs> yeah, and I was like, yes, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, so I mean, I think that's the the way that we're designing things. It's important to think about that. And you know, I've really thought a lot about trying to get the students off. I mean, getting them off grounds too, right? Like getting them embedded in companies that are struggling with these types of problems. Yeah. I think it's going to be really important. Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, I, I've I was just talking to your dean about about the capstone projects that your master students have, and I think yeah. that's wonderful. And you know, there is no data set that's good. I mean, can I say like no, no that's data totally set? Fair. Yeah, that's every right. data set sucks, and so if you just if you just get assigned a couple actual projects for, that actual people have, then you have to sort of uh, reckon with the like complete, completely crappy data set, and you have to sort of say, okay, what does this missing data mean about the blind spots of my algorithm? What does this bias data mean about the unintended unintended bias of my predictions? And like that's the really how you get these kids to think. Yeah, and I think we're we're trying to design, like I said, we're trying to have kind of these active learning as the default approach for these. And then don't present the solutions, but let them reason through them to a certain extent. And I think that's how you, I, at least we were uh, con, you know, considering that that's probably the way that we get there for that. You know, I love yeah. that idea. I mean, and it goes back to our earlier conversation about the craft of data science and the sensitivity analysis. Like sometimes one of the projects I wanted to do, uh, and I think you guys should do now that I think of it, okay. is give uh, give like five or six groups of students the same exact project with the same exact data and then compare the answers because they're going to be totally different. And 
and backtracking and sort of delving into why they're different. Not saying that anybody was wrong about it, yeah, yeah. but why are they so different? No, um, that's a very exciting to do kind of like a, uh, you know, we do our own algorithmic audit associated yeah. with how they came to these conclusions. Exactly. And then have them debate about why the results are different. That's Sometimes nice. it's like a hyperparameter difference. Like we oh, used yeah. we use yeah. three variables. They use two. You know, like whatever, like right. coefficients or whatever. Yeah. And you, and you're going to get different results, and they're both going to be like perfectly okay yeah. as answers, but they're going to be different. Yeah, the subtlety on the front end can make a huge impact. You know, when these things go live, things like that. So like having them understand that that these are deliberate choices. Like you're making choices, and you have amount of freedom. So I think people come into this idea about machine learning or statistical learning and models, that they're very canonical, right? That yeah. there are these things, but that's not really true at all. It's not at all they're, true. They're, yeah, they're hyperdynamic. I mean, you can change them almost at a whim and it can make such a huge difference. And, and that's a hard thing. And accidentally, right, mm -hmm. unintended. Hey, can you tell us about your new book? Yeah, I talk about um, shame as a profit motive for a sort of traditional um, like you know, age shaming would be the cosmetics industry. Fat shaming would be the weight loss industry. But also, and they're making, they're doing the shame. They're, they're directly shaming people to buy a product that doesn't work so that they come back for more. <laughs> it's like that simple. Um, but I also talk about sh other shame machines that are not exactly profiting, but they are profiting, but it's not money, it's power. So like the Catholic church shaming the victims of, of child abuse or the way we shame poor people in this country or the way we shame uh, people with addictions in this country. And sometimes that is pro for profit. If you look at the Sackler family emails to each other, like shame the addicts was an actual phrase from one of the, one of the, uh, one of them to the another. Um, and then the rehab centers, which are shame based and don't even use like me medically assisted treatment, uh, which is much, much better than the stuff they do, which is, you know, basically shame. Um, shame doesn't work. That's kind of my point. Like punching down shame, that kind of shame doesn't work. So that's shame for profit, shame industrial complex, if you will. The new, the newer uh, sort of instantiation of this notion of profiting by shame is the social media giants, where they're not shaming us directly to make us buy a product. They're sh they're creating the perfect system for us to shame each other. I see. And thereby profiting off of us. Yeah. Um, so they're making us work for them for free, um, and. And it's crazy because it's so successful. And the reason it's so successful, by the way, is because it's actually really fun to shame people. When I say fun, it's like, it doesn't feel fun exactly, but it lights up our pleasure centers. Sure. And then when we, on the, on the top of that, the design of the social media is that our in-group, our friends and stuff, they congratulate us on being so righteous. So we get more pleasure center bumps. And so at the end of the day, we're conditioned to do that kind of thing, even if it doesn't work, which it often doesn't because we're often punching down, which is to say punching at people who don't have actual choice to conform or don't have almost almost never have the voice. I, I talk about punching down as a matter of choice and voice. Like if you're punching at somebody who doesn't have a choice, that's inappropriate. If you punch at somebody who cannot defend themselves or cannot be seen to improve their behavior, that's also inappropriate. And it's almost always true. Like when you see people shaming on Facebook or Twitter or something, they're not going to be seen again. We don't know what's going to happen to them. They might change their tune tomorrow and be behave better, but we're never going to know. So that's punching down. That happens so much. So then you might be like, well, what's the point of that shame? Because they're not going to, they're not going to conform, at least not visibly. Sure. The answer is, it's performative, 
mostly. It's mostly performative. And we are conditioned to do that performative shaming and they make money from us doing it because it's a spiral. It's a spiral. Like we shame them, they get outraged, they shame us back because we're often shaming people that don't even agree on the norm. Yeah. So that's definitely not gonna work. Anyway, the point is that social media has perfected the art of engaging shame, manufacturing shame for profit. Um, so they're sort of the new instantiation of the shame machine. But having said all that, the book isn't anti-shame. Okay. I am actually pro-shame. Okay. But I'm not pro-inappropriate punching down shame. I'm pro-punching up shame, which is the opposite. Okay. So you're punching up at somebody with, with a choice and with a voice. Typically, that means you're holding power to account. Every single civil rights movement was shame-based. Holding power to account is shame on you. You say you believe this. You're not acting that way. Sure. Behave better. We're watching you. So just the very fact that they're being watched means they have the power to defend themselves and the 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 sort of staying power to be seen be behaving better. And the point is that you're saying you had you had a stated ideal that you're not living up to. So yeah. hypocrite. That is punching up and we, we need it. The problem is that we aim too low. We we are and Facebook makes us aim too low. <laughs> No, this makes sense. It's it's interesting. This is like the duality we talk about. Like social media is not going anywhere, right? We're not going to suddenly eviscerate these gigantic. I really wish we could. Though. I wish we could too. I, I have I have young young girls that I'm terrified for. But you know, there is this idea that you know maybe maybe if we can think about it in the broadest sense possible, that there there could this is the most effective platform for positive shaming. That if you think seen, about right? all the energy we put to shaming, to punching down and punching people we don't know, we'll never see again. And we've we just imagine taking 5% of that and, and flipping it. Yeah. using solidarity to punch up yeah. instead, it would be so powerful, especially if we punched up at Facebook, <laughs> right. at the social media giants themselves for profiting. Yeah. I just want to tell you one story and then we'll be done. Okay. No, the, no, the story please. is I was invited to Kiev last September. It was the only trip I took before wow. this one, essentially. And I didn't even know why I was there, but like some oligarch brought me there um, who was pro-Western, pro-democracy. And I met Zelensky, for example, he was there. Wow. And um, I was talking about algorithms and how they optimize us to fight with each other. And you know, I was like, I don't know why I'm here, but I'm here. And then this woman in the, in the Q&A afterwards was like, I am a member of parliament. I used to be a technologist. And when I was a technologist, I thought technology was gonna save democracy. And now I realize that technology is destroying democracy. Yeah. And what can we do in the Ukraine parliament about Russian propaganda that is undermining people's trust in, in democracy in the Ukraine? And I'm like, dude, nothing. You can do fucking nothing. I'm sorry, I was not supposed to swear. No, it's fine. Um, you can do nothing. And it's outrageous that you can do nothing. And it's outrageous that our politicians aren't is aren't putting this like putting a stop to this. And you know, when when the when Russia actually invaded Ukraine and Facebook made a big deal about how they're gonna stop Russian state propaganda, like they're stop gonna stop profiting from Russian state propaganda as if that's like some great thing. It's like, dude, you guys made how much money setting this all up? You know, they made they played a major role in the in the in, in 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 the sort of table setting of that invasion, and I will not forgive them for that. Well, and none of us should. I mean, one of many, right? I mean, so they've been doing this type of thing across the. I mean, never mind the Rohingya in Myanmar. And there Myanmar. was a genocide against them because of the right. Facebook situation. So, yeah. yeah, 
Yeah, I think we, we should shut them down, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's the federal regulation. Maybe it's, you know, we, we don't have the laws yet. That's what Congress is for. Yeah. So. And to be problem. honest, like I, I spoke to the Senate Senate committee about this. It is bipartisan. Like the, there is a bipartisan push to like do something, although I'm not really sure what. Yeah. <laughs> it's not clear. Well, well, it's important for us to, you know, have voices like yours pushing for this. Thank you. You know, because I don't think there's that many people that really think about it in the terms that they should. You know, they have, you know, kind of. It's really not that complicated. That. It's profiting from propaganda. I don't yeah. know why that's so hard to grok, but. I think I think it's hard for politicians to grok because that's how they make their money. They actually they actually make money from appeals on Facebook. Yeah, and I think we when we talk about functioning like in a you know a twenty first kind of modern democracy, you know, there's a real importance for civic education. But I think, you know, the frontier, and that's a threshold we still have not totally crossed, like the frontier would be data literacy. It's going to be something that people are going to have to know universally, right? And so we're thinking about ways to expand, you know, even into K through 12, we're working here in the state of Virginia to try and promote the ideas about, you know, how algorithms work and data science education earlier on, because I think it'll be more important as we get further down the road. I'm not going to disagree that everybody should have a basic knowledge of stuff, but I, I just want to caution that I don't think we should ever make it a requirement for the average person to understand how algorithms work. The, the average person should be protected from, their human rights should be protected, if you will, or their rights or constitutional rights should be protected without them having to sort of understand it and fight. So that's a pretty important thing. But I, I'm not saying I'm against literacy. I'm totally for literacy. And I do think it'll be helpful for people to know, even if it just means that they'll know enough to be like, I don't believe you. That's what I think. There's just having people be aware yeah. of how these systems work, like that type of, maybe it's more of like an uh, overview of, you know, that how technology is impacting their lives mm -hmm. as an option, as an important part of general education. You know? When when data science uh, sort of got popular in 2012 or whenever it was, yeah. people were like, it's gonna make things more fair because it's, a, it's an algorithm. That's not true, not that true. was pure hype. Yeah. But theoretically we could make things more fair. We could choose values that we aspire to and embed them in code. We could do that. That's the most exciting thing, I think, about the future, about data science. Well, I, that's what we're trying to do here. I hope so. At least we're designing our, our classes that way. And thank you for being here and being a part of that. And if you yeah, want to help I'm us do it. I'm excited about this place. Yeah, keep it coming. Thanks for, thanks for thanks emailing for me, Brian. Hey, no problem. Thanks for responding so quickly <laughs> and coming and visiting. It's been a pleasure. It has yeah. for me too. All right. Thanks for listening to UVA Data Points. For more information on Kathy O'Neill, head to her website, mathbabe.com. And be sure to check out her books, Weapons of Math Destruction and The Shame Machine. You can find these links and more in the episode's show notes. For more information on the UVA School of Data Science, visit datascience.virginia.edu. And if you're enjoying UVA Data Points, write us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have an episode idea, email us at uvadatapoints@virginia.edu. Our next episode, which will focus on the area of design, features a conversation between Raf Alvarado, who you heard from in our trailer episode, and Alison Bigelow, who's with the UVA Department of Spanish, Italian, and Portuguese. They discuss their exploration of the Quiche Mayan Book of Creation. This episode will release on October 1st, but keep an eye out for a bonus episode later this month. We'll see you next time.